All right. Last week, we talked about the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. We said that the ultimate authority and affirmation of the truth of God's Word is dependent upon what? Do you remember? The Word. The Word itself. We talked about how the Bible claims to be absolute truth, and it claims to be the very Word of God. And then we warned in our third point that the self-authenticating nature of Scripture does not produce easy believism, but rather true conversion. And therefore, our final point last week, which is where we pick up this evening, is that the power of the self-authenticating nature of Scripture comes from the power of the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. In other words, ultimately, at the end of the day, we can have discussion after discussion about the reliability of the Old Testament, the history of the Old Testament. We can talk logic and reason. We can give facts. We can talk worldview. Blah, 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 blah. But if you have not been made new, if you have not been reborn, if you have not been given spiritual life, the Holy Spirit does not dwell in you, and therefore, you do not have the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Scripture really, at the end of the day, will be nothing more than maybe a moral read or a historic read, but it will not produce change and transformation in you. And this is where we, be, where we begin tonight. The inward testimony of the Holy Spirit is the very basis of a biblical worldview and the foundation for a confident faith. As Christians, We base all that we do and say on the Word of God, and we do this with eyes that now see the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus because we've been born again and therefore have the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. Tonight is the beginning of a five-week walkthrough of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 through 6, and then our final week of this year will be on the sufficiency of Scripture. But the next five weeks, including tonight, we're going to discuss... Where does biblical faith come from? How does it grow? And how does it transform us? All right? Where does biblical faith come from? How does faith grow? And how does this faith transform us? Now, 2 Corinthians is the last of the letters that Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Actually, some scholars believe there were five total letters, and that actually chapters 10 on in 2 Corinthians was a fifth. Um, I tend to hold the belief of, of four. You've got 1 Corinthians, you've got two lost letters, and you've got 2 Corinthians. But this is, let's just say, for the sake of the majority argument, this is the last letter in which Paul writes to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians, the two lost letters in 2 Corinthians, Paul has dealt with many issues in this church. He's called out people in the church. He's called out false teachings. He's called out sin in the church. He's talked about affliction and Here we find in the first two chapters of 2 Corinthians, Paul talking about the comfort that he has in God in the midst of many persecutions and afflictions. Now, this should remind us of our three weeks talking about how God preserved his word and his church. And if you remember, tell me what were the two main ways we focused on throughout all the generations of how God has preserved his word and his church. He's used two main things. Number one, what? Do you remember? First way that God has preserved his word, there is all, we spent literally two whole weeks on all these types of things happening in the Patricia period. Suffering. Okay. (laughs) Yikes. The second is, I'll just go ahead and tell you, I'm not going to embarrass myself or, or you any further. The second is through false teaching, right? 
So we, we, we expressed that a number of times. Suffering and false teaching. God has used these things throughout history to both purify and preserve his church. And so Paul here is talking in the beginning of 2 Corinthians. And in chapter 1, verse 3 through 7, he says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that, there's a reason he comforts us, we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. As we share in Christ's sufferings, we share in his comfort. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Paul is saying that him and his team, if they are afflicted, it is for the sake of your comfort, those in Corinth, and their salvation. That's amazing. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, Paul says, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. There's a constant theme of we've t- as we've talked about suffering, and I, I gave out again the over 40 passages of Scripture a number of weeks ago for you to take home and, and read through that talks about the gospel's uh, purpose, God's purpose in the gospel using affliction and suffering. And, and here you see that we have Christ's comfort as we share in his suffering. Paul goes on to discuss in the beginning of this letter the triumph that we have in Christ, even in the midst of false teaching and persecution. We're going to talk about the false teaching aspect tonight. So he picks up in, in chapter 3, confronting this specific false teaching and discussing the importance of knowing how we have victory. So chapters 1 and 2, comfort and affliction. We have this victory in Christ. Now he's going to put it face on with the actual false teaching happening in Corinth at this time and how we can have this victory, or rather, what Paul will say, in whom we have this victory. So tonight we're going to discuss five things that we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, but we're going to begin by reading the chapter. So if you have your Bibles, let's read chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of what? A new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Hey, Heather, can you go pull me back just a little bit? Thank you. Verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there is glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. 
Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Whoa. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Heather, I actually do have my numbers as well, so if you're open to following along with me, that would be awesome. Five points tonight. Five things that we see from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll begin with number one. Number one, faith does not come from where? The law. Faith does not come from the law. You see this in, in verse 1 through 11. You see this context uh, or this concept of there was a letter that was written on tablets on stone this would be what the law the ten commandments specifically but uh, ultimately you can you can talk about because it's talking about the old covenant the whole covenant essentially the five first five books of the old testament we know as the pentateuch the tanakh this is uh, the entire encompassing of the law and this was written in ink it produced a glory but a glory that was fading away second corinthians 3 says and so we, we ask ourselves, how does God give the law and command us to follow something, yet it will not produce salvation or faith? Well, in, in Corinth, Paul is dealing with Judaizers. And they are teaching that salvation comes through works, namely obedience to God's law. The big difference happening here in the beginning of this chapter is about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And if you remember in the beginning of our study this year... When we talk about the word testament, it comes from the word testamentum. And what does it mean? You remember? Covenant. So Old Testament, Old Covenant. New Testament, New Covenant. The letter that is written in ink on the tablet is the law. The letter that is written by the Spirit on our hearts is the New Covenant in Christ. Christ referred to the New Covenant in the giving of the Lord's Supper. This reveals, this is important. When Christ talks about the new covenant, it's in the context of the Lord's Supper. Now, this is important because it reveals that the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus as the Passover lamb, is the fulfillment of the old covenant and the commencement of the new covenant. Christ's death, his sacrifice, is the completion, the ending of the old covenant, and the beginning of the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13 says this, In speaking of a new covenant... He makes the first one obsolete. It's not needed. It's absolved. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the old covenant is vanishing. The glory is uh, decreasing. It is fading away. You also see this in chapter 9 of Hebrews verse 15, which the author of Hebrews goes on and he says, Therefore he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. 
And then finally in chapter 12, verse 24, it says that Jesus is the mediator of the covenant and that his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4, that we have confidence through Christ toward God. It's not because we have been sufficient in ourselves of keeping the law, because we know that we have all fallen short, but rather that Christ has made us sufficient, is what it says in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 3, our passage tonight. Christ has made us sufficient, and He has made us now ministers of this new covenant. So He was the mediator, and now He's made us ministers of this new covenant. We're going to see this again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in a few weeks. But then Paul says something incredible that probably would have greatly offended the Judaizers. He said this, For the letter kills. Now this is what's amazing. Paul is not just saying there's no salvation or faith that comes from the law. He's not just saying that the old covenant is obsolete, it's done, it's been fulfilled, and now there's a new covenant. He goes even further and says this, Not only that, but the old covenant is a letter, a ministry of death, and it kills. He calls it a ministry of death. This letter, this old covenant, kills. It brings people under condemnation. Those who live according to the law will be be cursed. Those who think that you can attain salvation by works of law, by fulfilling the law, which we cannot do, you will spend an eternity under God's wrath. It's unbelievable that Paul would say this, especially in the context of who his audience is. Mind-blowing. He calls the letter on tablets the ministry of death. And then he says that the glory of this covenant, the old covenant, the glory which the Judaizers would have loved, the glory of the law of Moses, that this glory was brought to an end. In fact, he says in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, our passage, verse 10 says that, it has no glory at all anymore. There's no glory at all in the law. It's done. It has passed. It's faded away. It's why Moses wore a veil to keep them from seeing that this glory was passing. Now Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 through 14 tells us that all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Why are you cursed? Because if you do not abide by all of the law, you're cursed. James says says the same things. If you've broken part of the law, you are guilty of committing a sin against all of the law. For he who has not committed adultery but has committed murder is convicted under the law. Verse 11 in Galatians chapter 3 says, Now it is evident that no one, say no one, no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Now I want to, everybody give me your eyes really quick. The majority of you in this room have probably heard this before, right? But it's, it's critical and important once again That even those of us who are saved, not by the law, would remind ourselves that trying to please God according to the law and not by walking in step with the Spirit by His grace is just as an offense. So we're we're, going to build some groundwork that's going to lead to the main point of tonight of where biblical faith comes from. But do not just become uh, comfortable with hearing this type of preaching about what the law doesn't produce. 
Let it resound again tonight. Verse 12 in Galatians 3. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us. Amen. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do this? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Verse 14 says, That in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Thank you, Lord. So that we might receive the promised spirit. 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 Not the letter. Promised spirit through faith, not the law. In fact, Paul tells us in the chapter before, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, that if we, this is amazing, if we could be declared righteous through the law, Christ died for no purpose. In other words, people who live as if the only way to gain acceptance into the kingdom and to please God is by fulfilling all of His commands, they are living in such a way. I'm not talking obedience. Those who want to now uh, live for the Lord. We're going to get to that point. Okay, so for everyone who's kind of like, so what, we should just forget the law and live as we want? No, we're going, to get, we're going to get to this in a second. But for those who think that that is how you get right standing with God, you are living in a way that is if Christ died for nothing. You might as well just spit on the cross. That's what Paul says in Galatians 2.21. He also tells us throughout Galatians that the law, listen to all the things the law cannot do. The law cannot justify the lost sinner. The law cannot give a sinner righteousness. The law cannot give us the Holy Spirit. The law cannot give us an inheritance. The law cannot give life or freedom. This is why Paul in 2 Corinthians Chapter 3 says that this law, this letter, is a ministry of death. Whoa! So this leads us to a question, right? If all this is the case, then why give the law? Why then the law? Paul, as he often does in his writings, he always anticipates the questions. He anticipates the rebuttals. And so in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19... He answers his questions. He said, you may say, well, why then the law? Here's the reason. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come. Who's the offspring? Christ. The law was given because of transgressions until Christ would come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. You see, the law was not given for the purpose of salvation. Because we cannot be saved by the law. Rather, the law was given for the purpose of showing us our need for a Savior. The law can bring us to Christ, but it cannot make us like Christ. Listen, the law can bring us to Christ, but it cannot make us like Christ. This is important even as we walk and keep in step with the Spirit. That it is not doing things for God that makes us like God. Right? The law is focused on the external. The Spirit is focused on the internal. The law can bring us to Christ, but it cannot make us like Christ. So does this mean that Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians that the Old Testament is abolished and pointless? Well, no. Remember, Christ himself said that he did not come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. Everything about the law was pointing to Christ. And this is why Paul says that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. 
The law, as we said, produces external change. The Spirit produces internal transformation. So this leads us to number two. Number two, regeneration produces faith, which is a gift of grace. Now, there's a lot that could be said just in that statement of kind of what comes first. Faith, regeneration, works, all these types of things. And, and we don't have the time to get into that conversation this evening. I chose these words purposely. Maybe we can talk further about it if you're wondering kind of if this is uh, the case. But I think of Ephesians chapter 2, 8. You have been saved by what? By grace through what? Faith. So grace is something that happens first. First, you cannot have faith if you've not been reborn. So no one in their dead state produces faith, has faith, and then they're made new. But rather, by grace, who are made new, regeneration, and this produces faith by grace. It is a gift of grace. Now, this new covenant that Jesus, Paul, and the author of Hebrew tells us about is prophesied in the Old Testament. We talked about this already, actually, uh, in our first or second week. If you look at Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through 33, it says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. If you want to know how deep depravity goes, look at how God prophesied all these things and yet the Jews still reject it. Right? This, this is part of what was given to the Jews. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Right? Read Hosea. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, which first was the letter on the stones. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their what? Hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You also see this in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 through 27. It says this, I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will, or, yeah, and I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you, I love that, I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. I love this because it wasn't just enough for God to give us a new heart. The same grace that saved us is the grace that sanctifies us and now moves in us. You see this in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 as well. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared these works beforehand that we should walk in them. So you see grace is totality of all of salvation and the rebirth, justification and faith and sanctification and in glorification. It is all grace. This is what Paul is referring to here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is the letter of the Spirit. It's the new covenant. It's written on human hearts. It gives life. It's the new birth. This is what Jesus refers to in John chapter 3 when he says to the Judaizer, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You've been born of water, Nicodemus. You must be born of what? Spirit. Paul tells us in Romans 8 about the law of the Spirit and how it's different from the law of the flesh. In chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, listen to this. There is therefore now what? 
No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life, remind you of 2 Corinthians 3, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free, 2 Corinthians 3.17, in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The letter kills, the ministry of death. Do you see it? For God has done, I love this, God has done who? God. Few people are awake. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. He did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, there is no hope and there is no life for those who are not born of the Spirit. No hope. There's no life given to those who have not been born again. The law of the letter kills. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, to set the mind on the flesh is death, right? It's, it's the mind that is set on it. You see this later again, in, in, continuing in verse 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it what? It cannot. Then verse 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8, verse 7 through 8. In Romans chapter 3, we see that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Verse 20 says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And verse 23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2 tells us that apart from the new birth, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. So this is why faith comes from the New covenant. And this only happens when a person is born again. Now we're going to spend a good majority of the rest of the time talking about what that means, how does that take place, etc. But I'll tell you a few things first. It doesn't happen by works, right, of the law. It doesn't happen by any kind of moral code. There's no scales. This is why we say we can't say that our Roman Catholic friends are brothers and sisters in Christ because their faith and works. And what we just see in Scripture and the truth of Galatians 3 and Romans 3 and Romans 8 and Romans 5 and Romans 1 and 2 Corinthians is that this ministry is a ministry of death. The letter kills. And not only that, but it says according to Galatians chapter 2, it's as if Christ shouldn't have even died. He died in vain. So if it sounds intense and unloving towards people who try to add, the reality is tough. It is intense. It is serious. There's no part of the law that makes you holy or found righteous before God. It is only being born again. And this happens only by God, by His grace. You've been saved by grace. For God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So faith does not come from the law. Number two, regeneration produces faith, which is a gift of grace. And we see this because it is impossible to please God, Romans chapter 8, as we just talked about, if you have not been born again. This means that at the heart of the problem for a lack of faith today and a lack of trusting in scriptures is that people are spiritually dead. 
this is a result of the fall, and the law reveals this even greater. However, Paul is revealing there's a new covenant. Amen. For the good news. The good news isn't good news if you don't know the bad news, right? You just abuse the good news and you wave a good luck charm around your neck if you don't know the reality of who you were before Christ or who you might still be and you don't realize that you're not in Christ yet. He's given us a new covenant. It's a letter of the Spirit. It's not written on tablets or stone. It's written on our hearts. This letter, this covenant, this faith is totally grace. It's all a gift. Ezekiel 36, what he saw, God gives us the heart. 2 Corinthians 3 tells us the Spirit is the author writing it on our hearts. Ephesians 2, we've talked about it. While we were dead, God made us alive. We're saved by grace. There's nothing that you can do to be saved because you're not saved by the law. If you could do something to be saved, then Christ died in vain. So we look now to number three. Faith comes from the Word. And these next these next two points, before we get to point five, are about where faith comes from, right? Um, and so, if, if we were to all close our eyes and you were to repeat a prayer after me, that does not mean you're saved. If you have, uh, if we had an altar call right now and we sang a song, we dimmed the lights, we manipulated the moment, we got the Holy Spirit pad, which filled the room with the nice little ambiance. And all of a sudden, we manipulated into some motion, and I talked really broken in my speech, and I created a moment, and I began crying, and you felt overwhelmed because you're thinking about your sin this morning, and you want to feel good, and you came forward and someone prayed for you because you don't want the condemnation, you don't want the guilt, you don't want the sin, and you left. That doesn't mean that you're saved. Now, God can save you in spite of those things, okay? A- absolutely. I believe that there are genuine people who have been saved, and the conversion moment may have been when they are praying with their pastor, I believe that. That's fine. The point is, it is not any acts or specific things that happens. It is when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to the reality of sin and the truth of who He is and how what you deserve was placed on Christ and now you have eyes to see and behold the beauty of God. Your life is transformed. Your affections, your desires are renewed and you now follow after Christ. That's conversion. That's being born again. So these next two, we'll talk a little bit more specifically about that, although tonight isn't necessarily a gospel message. And I was talking to Elian, or Elian. <laughs> I was talking to Ellen earlier, and um, I said, you know, it's like this, this passage, and talking about faith, where does faith come from, makes you want to go into preaching the gospel from creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and how was that new birth really happened, but we did that last semester with Ephesians, and I feel like we spent the bulk of the first uh, semester discussing those types of things, and so just for our purpose tonight, it's not, we're not going to sit and dwell on those things, we're going to move to point three, faith comes from the word. Now many people will wrongly interpret this passage, if you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, in the very beginning, verse 3 says, You show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us. And then they'll look at this, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Some people wrongly interpret this passage and use it as an opportunity to validate extra-biblical means of inspiration or theology or doctrine, or even discipleship and evangelism. 
They say that this regeneration and new letter is written on our hearts by the Spirit. Therefore, we have the Spirit who speaks to us in our hearts, and it need not be according to the Word, because they kind of see the Word as, look, this is the old glory. I've been made new. The Spirit's inside of me. I don't need to necessarily submit and abide and dwell in the Word of God. I've got direct access to God with the Spirit inside of me. So why do I need to sit with my Bible, right? I know what I've been told. I've received the testimony of men. And this is where these dangerous doctrines and extra revelations can begin to creep in and mislead people. This was the case in Colossae. But this isn't the case here. They even would go as far. And you know, you, you hear this all the time where you pray for Muslims specifically. We have this idea that Muslims are saved by dreams. Now, there have been testimonies, right, of... Muslims who've dreamed and in their dreams they've seen Christ before they were converted and then or somebody's coming to tell them and they they knew who this was, they didn't know the name, and then they came, somebody spoke, and then they got saved because their dream kind of came true. I can't validate that or not validate that. Because I'm not God and I'm not them. Right? And I'm not the Holy Spirit. So I'm not willing to say that God cannot do that, obviously. God has done these types of things in dreams before. In His Word, He's appeared to people. But I, I struggle with this mentality of not basing everything we have on the Word of God. And that faith comes from hearing, hearing from the Word of God. Therefore, let us go and proclaim the Gospel. Because when we say things like, oh, they'll just have a dream. Or let's pray that God gives them a vision. Or that God will kind of give them a sign. We're depending on something extra of what God has not given us as the means of the commands to go and make disciples. So I struggle with people who say, pray for the Muslims that they get visions, but we're not willing to get in our boots and walk and preach the gospel to them. I'm unwilling to kind of feel good about, pray for my coworker that they receive a sign or a vision from God, and yet we never open up our mouth and proclaim the gospel to them. That doesn't make sense because the Bible says that we are the means in which God uses by His Spirit to proclaim the gospel. And then Christ, through the Holy Spirit, opens up their eyes to behold Christ, the glory of God, and they're changed. That's what happens. So I struggle with this. The Spirit is inside of me. Therefore, I can listen to God directly and it doesn't have to be in His Word. I struggle with that. Let us notice... Here, and I'll discuss this further, that Paul is referring here in this context, in this letter, to a new covenant and an old covenant. He's not talking about the word of God as a whole. He's not actually talking about the Old Testament, New Testament. He's talking about the old covenant and the new covenant. So this isn't a word of God situation. So if you say that, you know, the old has passed away, the glory has passed away, that was written in ink. Now we have it written in our hearts with the spirit that is not voiding the word of God. This is an issue of Christ fulfilling the law, instituting a new covenant. What's amazing, though, is that Paul, in his letter, as well as the Bible as a whole, tells us that faith cannot be separated from the word of God. John 14, 6, Jesus himself said that salvation is through him. He's the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through whom? Christ. And Jesus also said that uh, in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. John 1, Jesus tells us that he is the word. So think about it. How was the word given? According to the passages that we've looked at over the last number of weeks in Peter's writing and in Paul's writings, 
The word of God was inspired by God and men were carried along by the what? Spirit to write the word of God. The spirit of God is active in the writing of the word. Therefore, he must be active in the interpretation of the word. Therefore, in the new birth, he will not separate himself from the word. Do you see this? The spirit was involved in giving the word. Therefore, he is absolutely needed in interpreting the word. And you cannot separate the spirit from the word. And if salvation was going to be by means of anything but the word and proclamation, why give the word? Why not just testimony of men? You might say, well, so we can know how to live and all this kind of stuff. Okay, but, but, but who cares? Right? Because how we live is not as important as whether or not we are saved. There are plenty of people who can live a moral life who are not saved. So if we don't have the word of God, we get in this danger of the tradition of men. We, we think that all of a sudden there's a danger of I can be saved by the law, by the old covenant. The spirit will not separate himself from the word. Therefore, we must understand, especially in the context of holy living, salvation, all of that, this spirit that is writing in our hearts is not this extra revelation type of a thing. We've got to stop trying to separate the word from the foundation of faith. Specifically when we come and discuss unreached people. One of the answers I get all the t- or questions I get all the time is, what about those who have never heard the gospel in foreign lands? Where do they go? Well, what does the Bible say? Do they have Christ? If they die and Christ is not in them, can they be saved? No. And if you say, well, God wouldn't do that, what do you mean God wouldn't do that? But first of all, it's a result of man's own sin. Tower of Babel split the nations. And remember, there was pockets, and Paul had even said if he would go to Spain, then all the earth would have been reached with the gospel in Romans, right? So the gospel is infiltrating all these nations. The reason there's unreached people groups today is because forefathers of forefathers of forefathers have been sinful and rejected God and rebelled against God. You might say, well, they can be saved by general revelation because of Romans chapter 1 or Psalms 19 or Isaiah talks about, you know, God's word will not return void and you can see this in all of creation. That's just not the case. If you can be saved apart from Christ, then why do we go on mission? And if you can be saved based on what you are uh, accountable for knowing, if you're only held accountable for what you know, then the worst thing we can do is tell people who don't know about Christ about Christ. Because now they're brought into accountability. You cannot make a point biblically where people can be saved apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't make a point for it. So, faith. Comes from the word. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 through 17. How will they call on him whom they not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? And then verse 17 faith comes from hearing, and hearing from what? The word of God. What's amazing is that in the passage of missions, and anyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, it says, how will they call on him whom they not heard, preached, sent, etc. And at the ending of this passage, of how people are saved, says faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of God. So ultimately, faith comes from the word of God, which is why in all of our discipleship, all of our evangelism, all of our ministry, we cannot afford to separate anything from the word of God. 
God has given us this word, and it has been at great cost. We're born of the Spirit, yes, but the Spirit does not ever separate himself from the word. He is indeed the Spirit of truth. And once we allow a separation and build a theology, a theology outside of the word, we end up contradicting our worldview. Right? We create a platform where there's no need for the Word of God. I'm not sure that people who believe in extra-biblical interpretation or revelation or believe that people can be saved apart from the proclamation of Christ, I'm not sure they understand the consequences of theologies like that. Because now, the Bible is not sufficient for all things. Now the Bible isn't the foundation for all of truth. Now you can build a worldview based on extra Things. But the question is this, Vic, if you heard an extra word from the Lord, not from the word of God, who's validating you? How do I know that you aren't just making up something to justify what you want to do? Who's validating Vic? I can't. But if I got the word of God, I can say, wait a second. He said this, but the word of God says this. Therefore, you're in error because the word of God will never be in error. In fact, when we look at Hebrews 11 chapter 3, or Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3, this is one of the most profound verses for biblical worldview in all of scripture. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 says this, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. The universe was created by the very word of God. Now you might say, yeah, but that's the audible word. You can't separate that. God spoke his word into existence. Christ is the word. We have the written word. All of this is indeed the word of God. Gavin, if I say to you, hi, my name is Dave, and then I write it and I hand it to you, is one my voice and one not my voice? No, they're both my voice. And uh, when you look at worldview, especially in the context of what we're going to be talking about this spring, people's biggest argument lies in the fact that they reject that God created the universe. So this is a worldview passage right here if I ever saw one. It contains who created the universe and how he did it. God created the universe and he did it by his word. Therefore, we are brought into a total foundation of how we execute our worldview. Now, please be careful in your execution of theology and interpretation. We should all be humble. I ask the Lord to do this specifically in my heart every day. God, help me to be willing to be shown where I'm wrong based on the word. I think, you know, like there's dangers with positions of teaching because you can be in error, but there's also a pride where I don't want to be shown by Gavin on Wednesday morning that one of my points was wrong. That stinks. That's embarrassing. And I don't want to have to like sit through the conversation the next week be like, Gavin's smarter than me and this is actually where I was in error last week. But we should all have this humble approach. You want to know why? I'm not the Spirit of God. Now, I've been called to a a place of teaching and shepherding, which is a specific call, but that doesn't make me better than Gavin because the eye can't say to the foot, I don't know if you're the foot or the armpit or the knee or the elbow or whatever of the body of Christ, but I can't say to whatever part you are, and I might be the armpit, probably am, right? I can't say to you, I have no need of you, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 Verse 11 says, who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person? Gavin, what am I thinking right now? No, you're wrong. I was thinking that Syracuse is playing right now. They're about to finish in 19 minutes. Nobody check the score or I'll hurt you, right? You don't know my thoughts because you're not the spirit of me. 
right? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except whom? The Spirit of God. The Spirit is the teacher, interpreter of Scripture. Paul goes on and tells us, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but we have received the Spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So the Spirit is now teaching us what the Word says about God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. We're interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So can we speak of what God says? Yes. But it also, or it must always be submissive to God's Word. Paul tells us here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that the Spirit is written on our hearts. But what is the Spirit writing? Notice that 2 Corinthians doesn't say the Spirit comes into our hearts. The the Spirit within us is writing the Word of God. You look, think of Psalm 119. You think of Proverbs 7. You think of Jeremiah chapter 31. You think about Deuteronomy chapter 6. All of these scriptures reveal that the Spirit is writing the Word of God. The Spirit gives us life and regeneration. It seals us for glorification, but it dwells in us for sanctification. And how does Jesus, we've already mentioned it, how does Jesus tell us we are sanctified in John 17? By truth. God's word is truth. Ephesians 1.13 We were sealed with the Holy Spirit when we heard the word of truth, which is the gospel of our salvation, and then we believed in him. The conversations at Pentecost happened when the gospel was preached and people were cut to the heart. Therefore, at the crux and foundation of preaching, of the Spirit's work, it is always in accord with the Word. So then the question becomes, before we finish with our final two, what does the Bible teach us about faith? What is faith in a practical sense? Yes, we know it is a gift from God, but what is it? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 through 2, gives us a definition. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or evidence of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. So the question then becomes, okay, so is faith hope? Is faith faith hope? Is it wishful thinking? Well, it is hope, but not in how the world perceives hope. In other words, I hope that the Syracuse men's basketball team's team makes the NCAA tournament this year. That is a far-fetched hope because we went 19 and 15 last year and we did not even uh, make the tournament then and we lost six of our players, four of our starters, and we did not have a good recruiting class. Therefore, though I hope we make the NCAA tournament, the reality is, is that probably will not happen, right? Also, I hope that the U.S. would qualify for the World Cup. And honestly, I never really doubted that they would. Yet they did. My hope was disappointed. But this is not the kind of hope referred to here in Hebrews in the context of faith. This hope, Paul says in Romans 5, verse 5, does not disappoint. Think about that. Our hope in the context of faith, our hope in Christ, does not disappoint. That's amazing! Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us, Romans 5, 5 says. This hope, Hebrews 6, 19 tells us that we have this hope as an anchor of the soul. It's a hope that is both sure and steadfast. The promises of God do not disappoint. Our hope is an anchor. Paul assures us of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20-21. through 21. 
He says, for as many are the promises of God, in him they are what? Yes. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. What a powerful, powerful scripture. Verse 21, him who establishes us with you in Christ is anointed or and anointed us is God. Therefore, faith is not believing in God, but faith is believing God. It is a knowing. It is a confidence. It is looking at the evidence as the next part that says so. It is the assurance, the confidence, the conviction of things not seen. So we want to transition before we get to verse or number four, Heather. If Hebrews chapter 11 says that faith is the conviction of things not seen, does that mean that there's a part of faith that is a blind faith? Well, uh, yes and no. Meaning this, there are things that we cannot see, right? There are things that we can see. God has given us evidences of himself through creation, through relationships, the word of God, all this type of stuff. But it is possible to look at God's evidence and not be born again. This has been the case that we've been trying to make for weeks. To look at all these things and not have faith. Right? And in 1 Corinthians 13 says that now we see in part, then we will see fully, even as we will be fully known. So there is an aspect of a limit to what we are able to see on this earth simply because of sin, even in our sanctification process. But this does not mean that faith is a blind faith. This leads us to number four. And number four is this, that faith is beholding. I believe based on the word of God in our text for today, that simultaneous with the new birth and faith is new sight. Look at verses 12 through 18. Since we have such a what? Hope. Since we have this confidence, this assurance, this promise, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But notice that they would not gaze. Notice they are not to gaze at what will come to an end. Okay, But their minds were hardened For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses has read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Regeneration. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And now we all, with unveiled face, not gazing at what is passing, but beholding what? The glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image. From one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is a spirit. The Israelites were blinded to the glory which was fading in Moses. And yet we see that even today, that the Jews are blinded to the greater glory of the new covenant because they reject Christ. This isn't just a problem for the Jews, as we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. But all unbelievers are blinded. They are veiled. They are kept from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's what 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says. Now, this passage in 2 Corinthians 3 is Paul's exposition of Exodus 34. Exodus 34 tells us when Moses uh, came down from the mountain, and when he finished speaking with the Israelites, it says that he put a veil over his face. Exodus 34 says, Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he had removed the veil. Turning to the Lord, the veil's removed. Until he came out. 
When he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses. The skin of Moses' face was shining. Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with them. This is the account of Exodus 34. But here, in the inspired letter of 2 Corinthians, we get a greater insight into this veil and lack of sight. Exodus 34 doesn't tell us what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3. In verse 14, it says, this is, now we're getting into the, my favorite part of tonight, as we come to a, a conclusion, right? Verse 14 in 2 Corinthians 3 says that the minds of the Israelites were hardened. Their minds were hardened. Listen, the Greek word that Paul used here for the mind means exactly affections and desires. So when it says that they were hardened, that they were blinded in their minds, it's saying that their affections and desires were being veiled to be able to see the glory of Moses' face, which came from being with the Lord and the giving of the law. Now this is really important. Because why? What do we know after reading this in 2 Corinthians 3? What do we know about the glory of Moses? It was what? It was fading. God hardened and blinded the affections and desires so that they would not fall in love with the glory that was fading, but rather the law points to Christ that they would see in the new covenant that is being promised to them, Jeremiah 31, that God is going to give a new covenant to the people of Israel. He's going to write it on their hearts, and it's pointing to the offspring. This is the glory that does not fade. So the minds, are the affections, the desires are being blinded from seeing a glory that's perishing. This is the same thing that ought to be happening today to us. It's okay to be blinded sometimes, as long as we're blinded to things that are fading. Look at God's law. The Jews would look at God's law and see glory, but they look today at Christ, the new covenant, and they're blinded because their affections and desires are actually for the letter. This actually goes right along with John chapter 3, that light came into the world, but men loved what? darkness because their deeds were evil this is the story of the man who put his hands to the plow but looked back right and therefore wasn't fit for the kingdom of god this is the story of the rich man who looked at all of his stuff and then walked away from christ sad because he treasured his riches more than christ this is what happens when affections and desires are desiring glory that fades they're blinded this is why we say that faith is beholding because believing God is all about treasuring Christ more than anything. 2 Corinthians 4.4 But God has shown in their hearts. The veil has been removed. They now see the light of the gospel, which is the glory of God, and this is in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. Christ is at the heart of beholding. This is not bondage and giving up desires and affections in order to come to Christ, right? When Being born again does not mean that you surrender your joy. Remember, Paul says it's the letter that kills. The Spirit gives you life. This faith, this beholding, these new affections and desires are actually what gives us freedom. Verse 17 here, where the the Lord is a spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Well, what is the freedom that we have? Freedom from the law. Freedom from obligation to fulfill the law. Freedom from condemnation because of the law. Freedom from dominion and power of sin after breaking God's law. Freedom from the power of Satan. Freedom from the bondage of corruption. Freedom from ignorance and error. 
These are massive freedoms that now we have in Christ because we behold Christ, which is a glory that does not pass away. So the question is, what are unbelievers blinded to like in verse 14? What did I write there? What are unbelievers blinded to? Like verse 14 says. Verse 14, their minds were hardened. The same veil remains unlifted. What are they blinded to? And what removes the veil? Well, verse 14 and 15 tells us it's Christ. Only through Christ is it taken away. They're blinded to Christ, and only Christ can take it away. We are blinded from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, when we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Christ is the game changer. He is what we behold. He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure that is found in the field. He is the glory of God. And this is what verse 18 shows us, that we now with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. And this is a glory that is not fading away. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us this glory is Christ. And this leads us to our final point. In closing tonight, number five, we are transformed by what we behold. This entire message has been leading up to this last point. Our theme for the year is transformed. Our goal that we've put forward each week is that we want to see people transformed by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, and actively transforming the world for the glory of God. We want to be people transformed by the Spirit of God through the Word of God, actively transforming the world for the glory of God. Well, transformation, verse 18, happens when we behold the glory of Christ. All right, give me your eyes really quick. I know I've fumbled in some of my words. It's a lot of information. There's been a lot of things you already know. If you've kind of enjoyed a little break from reality in the last 45 minutes, lock back in with me for the last seven minutes because this is gold, what we find here at the end of 2 Corinthians 3, okay? Faith, which comes from the Word of God and is beholding, leads us to understand, according to verse 18, that we are transformed by what we behold. Verse 18 says that we're transformed when we behold the glory of Christ. In other words, beholding or seeing is what transforms us. But that statement itself is not sufficient with what this text says. Rather, we are transformed by what we see because what verse 18 says is that we are being transformed into the same image that we are beholding. This is the important part. We are not just being transformed because we're seeing something. We're being transformed into what we see. This is radical. This is why idolatry is damning. This is why it is so crucial what our minds, or Paul says, our affections and our desires are gazing at and longing for. This is why Paul shows us here, they're being veiled and blinded to the glory that is passing Gaze at Christ. This is the Spirit. This is the, the glory that does not fade away. And when you behold and gaze at the glory of Christ, when you're looking at Christ, you're being transformed. But you're not just being transformed randomly. You're being transformed into exactly of what you're looking at. 
We transform into what we desire. We have affections for and what we gaze after, what we long for and what we pursue. That is what we transform into. Moses was reflecting the glory of the law. That glory did not last. In Christ, we radiate the glory of Christ. Therefore, we are being transformed. Being. We are being transformed. This, 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 uh, this is a verb, but it's a non-ending verb. This is something that is continuing to happen. I'm being sanctified from one degree of glory to another. James showed us people who are gazing and beholding correctly compared to people who have veils. In James chapter 1, beginning in verse 23, it says this, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. Once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Now think about this. When we go and in the morning we spend 15 minutes, maybe once a week, maybe if we're really good Christians three times a week, we look into this mirror, we behold the glory of God for 15 minutes, and then we walk away, we live our life, and we completely forgot what we were gazing at. This is what James is warning us. But in verse 25 he says, but the one who looks intently at what? Does anybody know? But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the word of God. One who looks intently at the word of God, the perfect law, the law of liberty. And so this, if you've listened tonight, when you hear law of liberty, you know it's not the law of the letter because that kills. But the law of the spirit in Romans 8 tells us that this is the law of the spirit of life. So James is referring to the same thing Paul's referring to in Romans chapter 8. That God has fulfilled the law what we could not and He has now given us the law of the Spirit of life. So when the person looks into the perfect Word of God, the law of the Spirit of life, the law of liberty, and abides in it. Say abides. Man, don't miss how good this is. Not the person who goes and looks in the mirror, walks around and forgets. But the one who goes and gazes at Christ, the non-surpassing glory, sits there, dwells in the Word, the law of liberty, the spirit of life, and abides in it. Stays there. Takes the mirror with them if he has to leave. This person is not a forgetful hearer, but is an effectual doer. And this man will be blessed in what he does. This is why Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor sits in the, or stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, the law of the spirit of life, he meditates when? Day and night. Think about this. We are being transformed into the same image of what we behold. And the glory we are to behold is Christ. Remember Romans 8.28? Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So, after the rebirth, after regeneration, the conforming happens by beholding Christ, abiding in that law of liberty. He's given us new life in Him for a very specific purpose, so that we may be like His Son. Therefore, we must behold the Son, not the Son's creation and make idols. Not the Son's benefits and make ourselves the idol. We are indeed transformed based on what we're beholding. Now, this has an inward 
conviction for me because I'm a chameleon. I know I'm a chameleon. I've been told I'm a chameleon by multiple people for the last probably three years. And I wish more people would have told me before three years ago. Justin Corbett was the first person to ever tell me, you're, you're a chameleon. I didn't know what he meant because I'm not good at animalography. But a chameleon, if you don't know, is something that adapts to whatever it's around. It can turn into what it spends its time with. So if a chameleon is green and it goes up a bark, it can turn into the brown color and match the bark. I'm a chameleon. My tendency, the way I please myself, is by pleasing others. You want to know what makes Dave Aubrey happy? When the people that Dave Aubrey is with are happy. So I work sometimes exhaustingly to make sure that people around me are happy. I'm gazing at other people. This is what I am prone to do. But here's the thing. We are actually all prone to wander. I love, come thou found of every blessing. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. So here's the question. If we're all prone to wander, which we are biblically, and if we become what we behold, one of the most important things you can do as part of your sanctification is know what you are prone to leave gazing at God to go gaze at. What are you prone to looking at? What are you prone to being uh, consumed with these affections and desires for? If you sit and you look in the mirror, the law of liberty, the law of spirit of life, if you gaze the beauty of God and you're tempted to leave and look somewhere else, what is the temptation? What is the thing you go to? What do you find sometimes more affection and desire in? And then cut it off. Now, it's not always that simple, right? It'd be nice. Holy Spirit scissors. But this is where brotherly and sisterly love in Christ comes. Identifying what competes for our gaze is a huge step in keeping our gaze on Christ. So I want to bring this home. We must ask ourselves, how do we behold Christ? The answer is so critical, especially for our theme this year. Where does faith come from? Biblical faith and how does it grow? Biblical faith comes from the spirit of life, regeneration by the grace and work of God. But it grows by beholding the beauty of Christ. We behold Christ, and this is where we're leading this year. We behold Christ today in the law of liberty, in the word of God. James shows us this, and we abide in it. We behold Christ in his word. So if you say, okay, I'm transformed by beholding Christ How do I behold Christ? The Bible shows us you behold Christ in His Word. Psalm 119.9 How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it, guarding it according to your Word. Verse 11 Your Word I've treasured, I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against God. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world. This happens by gazing and beholding with affection and desires the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, renewed affections, renewed desires, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, how do you know what the will of God is but in the Word of God? To make it even more clear, we look at Hebrews chapter 12. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, 
Let us lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on whom? How do you overcome being entangled by sin? Fixing our eyes, gazing, beholding Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. And verse 14 tells us even more how we do this. By pursuing sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. And this comes from the Word. This is why we cannot separate faith and the Spirit from the truth. If we are transformed in the same image we behold, and what we behold in faith is the glory of God who is in Christ, then in order to be like Christ, in order to grow in your faith, refuge, you must behold Christ in His Word. This is why Bible translation and Bible proclamation and evangelism and discipleship are absolutely urgent and utterly critical and non-negotiable for believers. Because a way the person, what this just showed us is the way a person is saved is the word of God. By grace, through faith. Faith comes to hearing from the word of God. Romans 10, we talked about all this. But the way that person is discipled and sanctified is by beholding Christ. And this happens through his word. So are you, uh, the question is not whether you are being transformed because every single one of us are being transformed by what we gaze at. But rather, are you being transformed into the image of Christ? If you aren't, I want to ask you three questions. Are you a slave to the letter? Are you a slave to the law? Number two, are you veiled? And blinded in your minds because of your affection for darkness. If those are the case, you're not reborn. You need to be born again. But if you are born again and you're wandering or rebelling or just plain stuck, here's the question for you. Are you beholding Christ in His Word? Are you captivated by the glory of God? Are you dwelling and abiding in God's Word? Are you talking about the Word when you sit in your house? or when you walk by the way, or when you lie down, or when you rise up? Is the Word of God binded as a sign on your hand or frontals in your forehead? Is the Word of God written on the doorposts of your home and your gates? If not, then you need to remind yourself tonight of this. This is it. This is it. I'm done. God has promised us, and remember, faith and hope. Hope is the assurance, right? This conviction, the evidence. Hope is the anchor for our soul. All God's promises find their yes in Christ. God has promised you tonight that through faith in Christ, all His promises find their yes in Him. This is our hope. It's not a worldly hope. It's our conviction. It's where we place our trust. And here's so cool. One of His promises for you believer tonight who's wandering, one of Christ's promises is that He will conform you to the image of His Son. God will conform you to the image of His Son. And that he will finish the work that he began in you. And he does this by revealing his glory to us through Christ as we see in his word. If you are drifting, gaze upon the beauty of Christ. Because God will keep his promise to you. Do not allow a quiet time to become a cliche. Do not allow a quiet time... To be a 15 to 20 minute time where you gaze at the mirror and then you go with your affection and desires on everything else that you want. This is why scripture memory is of the utmost importance. That is how you walk 
about it in your way and as you lie and you rise and you talk in the front list before your eyes and on your hands. Memorize the Word of God. Spend time in the Word of God. Talk about the Word of God. If you want to be transformed, you behold Christ in the Word of God and you fix your gaze upon Him. You abide there. You don't allow it to be changed and moved by affections and desires in other things. Tonight, we're not going to have small groups uh, to close. Before we're dismissed, we want to sing a song that captivates kind of where we ended tonight, that talks about the glory of God, talks about the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ, and all that. So what I'm going to ask you to do, we're just going to sing a song. I'm going to ask that you would make this a prayer, that even during this time that you would pray, maybe confess, plead with the Lord for these affections and desires to be renewed, plead with the Spirit to give you life, If you're not saved, grab somebody, have that conversation. If you are and you're wandering, plead with the Lord to give you that desire for His Word. But let's bow our heads right now. Before we sing, I'm going to have a time for you in your own heart to pray before the Lord.